Okay, if you have a Bible with you this morning, please open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, focusing on the supernatural events in the life of Jesus. We've been paying attention to the healings and to the miracles and the power encounters of Jesus. Today we'll continue uh, that look uh, by um, examining the transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, a profound supernatural event in the life of Jesus. But before I dig into that, just for continuity's sake, let me just mention a, a few other... We're, gonna, we're skipping and jumping from event to event, but a couple of things happen uh, along the way. Before we dig into Mark chapter 9... Um, a few things happened after Jesus healed the blind man from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. We looked at that last week. You guys remember, I told the story of how Jesus spit in the guy's eye and then prayed for him twice, and, and he was healed. God's ways are not our ways, so don't you know. And so uh, three things happened after that before we get to the transfiguration. I'll just touch them briefly. So Jesus is walking with his disciples to villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them a question. He says, who do people say I am? Uh, their answer was, some say John the Baptist. Remember, John's head had been cut off. Others say Elijah. And still others say one of the prophets. So there are people had different opinions about who this Jesus guy might be. And they all thought he was somebody other than Jesus. Then Jesus asked them a second question. This he asked specifically to his disciples. He says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus warns them not to tell anyone uh, about this. Now take note. When God asks you a question, it's not because he needs to know the answer. He already knows the answer. Right? Have you ever been in prayer and you felt like God asked you a question? He's not asking the question because there's information you have that he needs. He's asking you the question because you need to know the answer Amen. to the question. Amen. You alone know, Lord. <laughs> and I think Jesus is warning them not to, not to let the word out, yes, that he absolutely is indeed the Messiah. I think he's doing it for his disciples' safety, also probably to contain his wildly growing popularity at this point. And it's just not time yet to release uh, what's been revealed. Then in Mark 8, 31 to 33, Jesus begins to teach his disciples. Basically, he's revealing to them the future. I made reference to this in communion earlier. He says the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that they must, and that he must be killed and three days rise again. Right? Well, I mean, how would you like to be in, in that conversation? Wait a minute, wait a minute. We've left all to follow you. Right? And we know that the powers that be are not happy with you. But are you actually telling us they're going to kill you? And you're okay with this? Jesus is speaking plainly to his disciples here, without parables, without analogies. And Peter, God bless Peter, he decides that this is a good time to take Jesus aside and rebuke him. Man, how out of touch you got to be. You've been hanging out with Jesus all this time, and you decide you're going to rebuke Jesus. Oh my goodness, right? Just got to love Peter. Let's just say it all didn't quite work out as, Peter, as how Peter hoped it would. <clears throat> got a little bit of a sore throat this morning. I'm sorry about that. And then 
In Mark 8, 34 to 38, Jesus began to teach the crowd about the way of the cross. And this is what he tells them. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? David Guzer, commentator, says this about that passage. He says, the cross wasn't about religious ceremonies. It wasn't about traditions and spiritual feelings. The cross was a way to execute people. In these 20 centuries after Jesus, we've done a pretty good job in sanitizing and ritualizing the cross. How would we receive it if Jesus said, walk down death row daily? <laughs> Follow me. Taking up your cross wasn't a journey. It was a one-way trip. There was no return ticket. There was never a round trip. I needed that reminder this week. That's the way to cross. So those are the few things that happened in the rest of chapter 8. Let's move on to chapter 9 and take a look at the transfiguration. Verses 2 to 4. Mark chapter 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who was talking to Jesus. Wow. So much is said in these three short verses. Can you imagine Jesus says, let's go for a walk. You have no idea that before this walk is over, you're going to see this amazing event take place where Jesus is going to be transfigured. He's going to be glowing white. And oh yeah, Elijah and Moses is going to show up just you know, to make it even a little more interesting. That's a day you don't forget. Right? If you have a diary or a journal, that goes down in the diary. No surprise that it makes it into the gospel account, right? It's a pretty big deal. The Greek word translated transfigured in verse 2 is, uh, let's see, metaphor. Oh, metaphoro. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis. Vine's expository dictionary defines metaphoro as to change into another form. Meta, implying change, and morphe, meaning form. To change from one form to another form. form. Alone, here we have Jesus, alone with his closest friends, Peter, James, and John. And this event takes place. One of the commentators I read in preparing said, you know, everybody thinks that Peter, James, and John, they were Jesus' closest friends, and, and that's why Jesus always had him with them. He, this guy wondered if maybe Peter, James, and John were the biggest troublemakers, and Jesus just had to keep them close to keep an eye on them. You know? I could see that fit in Peter, you know what I'm saying? I'm not so sure about James and John. They, though they did ask for fire from heaven. To, maybe Jesus kept them close for another reason. I, I don't know. Yeah, sons of thunder. Gotta keep. You guys come with me. I'm not leaving you three alone. No way. We're going for a walk. I trust those other guys. Well, so I don't know. I don't know if that's the case, but I thought it was kind of funny. So they go up on a high mountain, and Jesus is supernaturally transformed before their very eyes. Now, get this. Jesus knows this is going to happen. He knows everything. And in one of the Gospels, I forget which one, Matthew, I think, says that... Um, that the disciples were asleep and they wake up and this is what they see. I think God designed it in such a way that they could witness it. 
that they could witness this supernatural transformation, this expression of the glory of God. God set it up so that his people could see it. It could have been done in private. There are lots of times where scripture says Jesus went off to a lonely place to pray, and sometimes the disciples didn't know where he was and they couldn't find him. This could have happened in one of those times, but it didn't. I think it's no mistake that God allowed his followers to witness him displayed in glory. So what exactly happens here? Matthew says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Both Matthew and Mark use the word transfigured to describe what happened to Jesus. This is a profound change. This is no small thing. It wasn't like the light was, the sun was shining at the right angle and the way it bounced off of him, oh, doesn't he look healthy? Or, you know, he's glowing. Right? This is so much more than that. As the Greek word indicates, Jesus' very form was changed. First he appeared one way, and then there was a change and he appeared an entirely other way. And for this brief time, Jesus took on an appearance much more appropriate for the king of glory than that of the humble man that he came as in the incarnation. He changed from an earthly form to a heavenly form, and his whole, radiant, whole, his whole being was radiant. The text tells us, wider than humanly possible, wider than anyone could possibly bleach it. That's the language they're using. Have you ever witnessed or experienced something of the presence of God, and it's like, English fails me. Verbiage isn't enough to, to fully describe what this experience is like. And I know that even if I write it down with as much detail as possible, it's still going to come, come up short. When I first started to see visions, a decade or a little longer than that now, I remember having a conversation with John Paul Jackson. Um, we were driving somewhere together, and this is, this is the advice he gave me. He said, Tom, this is what I want you to do. It's amazing that God's giving you these visions. He said, write them down with as much detail as possible. He said, some of it's going to be imprinted upon your spirit. You'll never forget it. He said, but if you write it down with as much detail as possible, later on, you'll reread it, and you'll discover that what seemed like a nothing was something. What seemed insignificant was suddenly very significant years later down the line. They, they're writing it down. They're using the best language they have. Whiter than anyone could bleach it. That's really white. It's really, really white. Glowingly bright white. I believe what, we, what was witnessed here was a revealing of the glory of God, or at least a measure of it. American pastor, Bible teacher, conference speaker, and author Warren Worsby says of the transfiguration, he said the word transfigured describes a change on the outside that comes from the inside. This is a change on the outside of Jesus that was birthed from the inside of Jesus. It's the opposite of masquerade, which is an outward change that does not come from within. So consider this, that being the case. Maybe the real miracle of the transfiguration isn't that Christ's glory is revealed so much as that it's been contained all this time. The God of all the universe comes to earth. The God who's limitless, all-powerful, knows all things, limits himself, limits his glory, and comes to earth because if he had revealed the fullness of his nature, unveiled, it would have annihilated us. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have survived the experience. 
Right? We'd be a little, a little oil spot on the ground. It'd be like stepping on the sun. We couldn't even get that close before we'd be, be done for. I like to say that love is self-limiting for the sake of another. That we choose to limit ourselves as an expression of love to other people. We do. You ever play tic-tac-toe with a five-year-old, right? Hopefully you could crush them every game, or at least tie them every game, if you wanted to. But you let them win. Why? Because of the, the delight you want to see on their face. Right? Love is self-limiting for the sake of another. That's what God did in the Incarnation. He limited himself so that we could relate to him. He came down to our level. That's what we see here. The real miracle isn't that some of the glory of God was revealed, but it had been contained all this time. It's as if the ongoing miracle of the Incarnation had been temporarily paused and his glory shined through, or at least a small portion of it. And if that wasn't enough, that all by itself would be amazing. Imagine you're going on this walk with Jesus, Peter, James, and John take a little snooze. They wake up, and Jesus is glowing with light. All by itself, that's pretty exciting. But there was more. Moses and Elijah make, a, make an appearance. And the three of them are having a conversation. Why Moses and Elijah? I think because they represent the law and the prophets, the fullness of the, the old covenant. And they're having a chat with Jesus. We don't know what they talked about, but they were talking. And here, right before their very eyes, the disciples have, a vi have visual proof that there's life beyond this earthly existence. Moses had passed some 1,400 years earlier. Elijah some 900 years before. But here they are, alive and shining with the glory of God, talking with their friend and their Lord Jesus. Now, how did these two guys, how did Peter, James, and John know that these two guys are Moses, Moses and Elijah? Well, if you've ever had a dream or a vision or experienced some kind of revelation, sometimes you just know that you know. You just know it. They looked, and somehow they knew that that was Moses and Elijah. I'm not thinking they had name tags, and certainly there was no photography back in the day, but they knew that it was Moses and Elijah. So if any doubts remained in Peter, James, and John's heart concerning Jesus' divinity, it had to be gone now. It had to be. And honestly, if I'm Peter, James, or John, I'm probably freaking out at this point. I've told the stories before. The first time I had a vision where heavenly beings showed up, it freaked me out. The whole, the whole event lasted seconds, probably less than ten. And, and the encounter ended not because the heavenly beings were done, but it was almost like a circuit breaker popped in my brain, like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. And I freaked out and it was over. That's what happened. I'm thinking these guys are freaked out too. And what we've learned about Peter is that when Peter's overwhelmed, his lips move. <laughs> okay? So verses 5 and 6, Peter's lips are moving. Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. No kidding. <laughs> Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. That's actually in the Bible. In, in, in little parentheses there, in little brackets, he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. It freaked them out. It would have freaked you out too. Jesus shows up glowing the light and 
Elijah and Moses are there, we'd all freak out. So what's Peter saying? Lord, let's camp right here. Let's tabernacle here and keep this thing going. Right? Peter sees Jesus in his glory, and he must have thought this to himself. Remember, he was, he was just rebuking Pete, Jesus not long ago. Right? A few verses back, Peter's rebuking Jesus because he's talking about you know, getting crucified and you know, death and all this stuff. And he must be thinking to himself, all right, this is how it should be. Forget all this business about suffering and rejection and crucified. Let's build a couple of tabernacles here and we can let's live this way. We glorify Jesus all the time. I love Peter's passion. I love his passion. I so identify, you know, with the passion of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon of Peter says this. He says, Peter was open-hearted, bold, enthusiastic. To my mind, there's something very lovable about Peter. And in my opinion, we need more Peters in the church of the present day. Though they are rash and impulsive, yet there's fire in them and there's steam in them. So that they keep us going. That's the truth. Amen? I'll say that again. This is what Spurgeon says about Peter. And I agree with him. Peter was open-hearted, bold, enthusiastic. To my mind, there is something very lovable about Peter. And in my opinion, we need more Peters in the church of the present day. Though they are rash and impulsive, yet there's fire in them. And there's steam in them. So that they keep us going. And that's the truth. I wholeheartedly agree. But wait, if that was all that happened, Jesus is glowing with light, freak out number one, Moses and Elijah, freak out number two, like those commercials, but wait, there's more. There's more to come. Verses 7 and 8, Mark chapter 9. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Right? So if it wasn't enough, already pretty amazing, right? a cloud shows up. And out of the cloud, God speaks. Now this, this cloud, this is a biblically familiar cloud. Some of my research, this is what I found. That, that the cloud of God's glory, which is traditionally known as Shekinah, that it was the pillar of cloud that stood by Israel in the wilderness in Exodus 13. It was the cloud of glory that God spoke to Israel from in Exodus 16. It's the cloud of glory that God met with Moses and others. You can read about that in Exodus chapters 19 and 24 and Numbers chapters 11, 12, and 16. It was the cloud of glory that stood by the door of the tabernacle in Exodus 13. It was the cloud that God appeared to the high priest in the holy place inside the veil in Leviticus 16. It was from this cloud that God appeared to Solomon when the temple was dedicated, so filling the temple that the priest could not continue to minister in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 5. It was the cloud of Ezekiel's vision filling the temple of God with the brightness of his glory in Ezekiel 10. It was the cloud of glory that overshadowed Mary when she conceived Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 1, it was the cloud of glory that received Jesus into heaven in his ascension in Acts chapter 1. And it is this cloud that will display the glory of Jesus Christ when he returns in triumph, as it tells us in Luke chapter 1, verse 27. This is what it says, at that time. 
they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. God's got a thing for clouds. <laughs> he utilizes clouds, and in this text, he speaks through this cloud. And he's speaking to Peter, James, and John. He's not speaking to Elijah or Moses. He's not speaking to Jesus. He's speaking to us as much as he's speaking to the disciples there. He speaks to Peter, James, and John. He speaks to all creation. And what does he say? The audible voice of God communicates to people on earth. He could say anything. Anything. And what does he communicate? He speaks of family and he speaks of love. Isn't that something? This is a profound experience. Trust me, if, you, if you'd ever had any kind of supernatural experience, this, is, this would go right up to the top of your list. Jesus shining in his glory, Moses and Elijah making an appearance, and the audible voice of God speaking through a cloud. They're guys, they've written books on this. They go on tour and speak about having much lesser experiences. And of all the things that Jesus could talk about, he didn't talk about impending world wars, right? He didn't, he didn't tell them what, you know, he didn't give them signs and wonders for, for the days to come, for the months, for the millennial to come. God could say anything. What's, and yet he speaks, and what's the most important thing he says? He speaks of family, and he speaks of affection. He speaks of love. He said, this is my son whom I love. So great is the father's love for his son. And he offers these simple yet profound instructions. <clears throat> Listen to him. Attend to, consider, comprehend, understand, perceive him, perceive what he's saying. It's as if he was saying Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the light. Listen to him. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Of all the things God could say, we should write that on our hearts. This is my son whom I love. He didn't correct Jesus. He didn't instruct Jesus. He didn't give Jesus instructions in that moment. He didn't say, you're doing this right, you're doing this wrong. He pronounced relationship, intimate relationship, family relationship. And he declared affection, great affection. Everything Jesus did on earth was for our benefit. He, he's the, um, the template. And his relationship with the Father... This is my son whom I love. Can you hear the affection in that? It's the very relationship we've been invited into. I won't go there today, but read John chapter 17, how Jesus prays to the Father. And in a nutshell, he says this. He says, Father, just as you and I are one, let them be one with us. We've been invited into this affectionate family relationship that Jesus shares with the Father and the Spirit. And he welcomes us into it. I love watching Jesus and the Father together. I love it. Too many of us were raised with the notion of an angry God. Some of us still wrestle with it. God's out to get us. He's ready to drop the hammer. I don't think that's as hard as nature at all. 
I think if you read all of Scripture from the beginning, it was all about, hey, let's hang out. Let's be friends. Why did he create us? So we could spend time with him. Because he loves us. We have a good God. Out of nothing, he created everything. So we had a place to hang out. That's a good God. That's an extravagant God. And even when we messed it up, he came to us. And let us witness these things. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. John Wimber used to say that the Christian life is as easy and as difficult as this. Listen and obey. Listen and obey. That's why I have such a passion to teach people and to train people on how to hear the voice of God. Because any relationship is enhanced when communication is better. The, the better a husband and wife can communicate, the deeper that relationship could go. The, the better that parents and children can communicate, the deeper that relationship could go. The better their friends can communicate. I've done a lot of pastoral counseling over the last 30 years. And more often than not, the problem is this. Somewhere along the line, healthy communication broke down. I can't tell you how many times I've sat between a husband and a wife, and basically I was a translator. <laughs> she would say this, and he would hear that. And I'd say, like, oh, wait a minute. I think what she's really saying is this. And, and the guy's like, oh, really? And she's like, yeah. You know? Well, it's the other way around. I said, wait, wait, wait. I think what he's really saying is this. And her eyes get really big, and he's like, duh. Yeah, I've been trying to say that a long time. <laughs> communication breaks down. I like to help people learn the ways that God speaks to them, the metaphoric, the parabolic ways that God speaks to you, to me, the analogies that he uses to communicate life and his heart and his love for us. Why? So that you can, so you can build a worldwide prophetic ministry? No! So that you can have a more intimate relationship with God because communication between you and your loving Father has been enhanced. That's what it's all about. What an overwhelming experience with God. And then it's suddenly over. Boy, I know that feeling well. I've had visions. It's like, man, this is amazing. And then boom, once, one second it's cooking, the next second it's, it's over. And when it's over, they travel back down the mountain. This is what it says in verses 9 and 10 of Mark 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this matter to themselves, discussing but rising from the dead men. <laughs> I love how clueless these guys are sometimes. It gives me such comfort. Sometimes on my journey with Jesus, it's like, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. You're saying these things to me. Now, look, we understand what rising from the dead means, right? We read the book. He rose, he, got, he died, and he rose from the dead, right? They can't tell if he's speaking literally or metaphorically. Rising from the dead. Remember the whole thing with bread we talked about last week? They're on the boat, and Jesus warns them against the, the yeast of the Pharisees, and they're thinking, oh, did he tell us this because we forgot to bring bread? They are not getting it. Let it comfort you. There will be times God will speak to you. You will not get it either, and it's okay. So again, Jesus gives them instructions not to tell anyone. And again, Jesus references his death and his resurrection, even though they're not understanding it. So what can we learn from this event? What does it teach us? Well, I think it teaches us that strange supernatural events are biblical. And that they're part of the new covenant. That God does strange God-like things. And just like Peter, James, and John, sometimes we get to be witnesses. We get to experience these strange things that God 
does these supernatural things that he does. That these events, they can be scary wonderful. Remember the text said that they were frightened. There are sometimes God's done things and it's been terrifying. I know it's him. But sometimes it's scary wonderful. good friend of mine, Scott, coined that phrase years ago. Scott's with the Lord now. He used to say, scary and wonderful. I'm like, boy, that really fits. That first experience I had, I freaked myself out of it. It was scary, and it was wonderful all at the same time. I pray that all of you experience scary wonderful. That the Spirit of God would show up and manifest in your life in such a way that that would be the only term to describe it. It was scary, and it was wonderful. I also like that when these things happen, just like with Peter, James, and John, we might not grasp it right away. My experience has been this, that first God does something, and later on the understanding comes. And that when I try to put my need to, to understand ahead of it, it just kind of screws things up for me. It's kind of like Peter saying, Lord, let's build three tabernacles. We'll put up three tents right here. We'll put a Jesus sign over one. We'll put Moses on one, Elijah on one. Right? That's him trying to figure out what's going on. I have found if I just embrace the experience as it's happening, understanding will come later on. And it has. I've got a good friend, Jim Driscoll. One of the, one of the people I know with the strongest seer gift. One of my, my personal friends was just a huge seer gift. I hope you all get to meet him someday. We got to talk about a week ago or so. It had been a while. I remember he had come to our church once in New York, and I was sitting in the car with him. We had gone out to eat. We are coming back to the church for the next meeting. And I said, Jim, I have all these experiences, and I've written them all down. I've got, I've got hundreds of visions. I said, but I don't understand them. And he just prayed for me. He says, I understand, Tom. He says, I get it. I totally get it. He said, that's how it's worked for me. First the experience... Then later on is the understanding. And he prayed for me that, I, that God would give me what's listed as one of the seven spirits of God in Isaiah chapter 11. The spirit of understanding. And you know what happened after he prayed for me? I started to understand. I went back and looked at some of the visions and things that made no sense before. Suddenly began to make sense. God's all about process. We want it all nice and packaged and done right now. He's about the journey. He wants to hold your hand. He wants to walk the road with you. And you'll, first you'll experience things, and then sometime later on he'll explain them. I'm fine that I'm okay with that now. What else can we learn for this? Is sometimes Jesus will tell us to hold on to an experience and keep it private for a while. I can honestly tell you, I've seen a lot more in the spirit than I've ever shared. And I've, and I've learned trial and error. Sometimes I'm so excited about something I've experienced, I want to share it. And as soon as the words come out of my mouth, they kind of fall flat. I'm thinking, that was probably too soon. It, was, it wasn't the right timing. Like Jesus told them here, don't say anything about this until after a, a later date. It's better to deliver things on time. There is a proper timing of the release of supernatural experiences. Truly, much more is revealed than is to be shared. I've learned this, that friends tell secrets to their friends. 
And if you're a friend who knows how to keep a secret, you'll be told more secrets. And that's how it's been with God. Sometimes he's just a friend telling a secret to his friend. See, because from God's perspective, it's all about relationship. Sometimes we really mess it up and we think it's all about ministry. I get revelation so I can tell people the revelation I got and so I can book another meeting and they'll buy my tapes or they'll support my ministry. Now we've messed it up. What if it's just a friend telling a secret to a friend? What if it's not about ministry, but it's all about relationship? If I could go back a decade and make a profound change, I would do this. I would have spent much less time... I would have spent much less time training people how to do prophetic ministry, and I would have spent much more time training people how to live prophetic lives. And there's a world of difference. I would train people less on how to book a meeting and how to teach a class than I would have taught them how to walk day by day with God in the cool of the day and listen to the secrets he tells you. I think it, I think it would have borne much more fruit. And that's what I'd like to do going forward. In the time that I've been here, there's a few things I've repeated a lot. This is one of them. It's all about relationship. This thing, Christianity, it's all about relationship. God wants to have close, intimate friendship with you. And like what happens with any close, intimate friends, you share things. You share the things with them that you don't tell just everybody. That's how it ought to be. God will reveal to you secrets that are meant to be kept between just the two of you. What else does this event tell us? It tells us that there's more. There's so much more of him for us. I'm convinced that as Christians, we've barely scratched the surface of who God is and what he has for us. Somehow, somewhere, as the centuries went on, we became content with just church on Sunday mornings. That whatever, if it's organ music or choirs or guitars, there's some music and hopefully some decent preaching, we see some of our friends and we go home. That's not what it's about. That's not why you became a Christian. Christianity is about you and God having an intimate relationship. Really close, where he's part of your everyday life. And he lives within you. And you walk this journey together. Hopefully when we come together on Sundays, we can share our experiences with one another, and maybe you can be encouraged to go on. We can learn from one another's successes and one another's mistakes. Because Jesus didn't come just so we could have these meetings. You know that, right? He wants your heart. He's not looking for a couple of hours on Sunday morning. He wants you. And not only does he want you, he wants your kids, he wants your friends. And if we're wildly and passionately in love with him, People will see that there's something different. They're going to want that too. There's more, guys. Let this experience in the gospel make you realize there's so much more. There is a supernatural element to who God is and what he does. More than the natural. More than what we can perceive with our five natural senses. There's more. And from one perspective, what's the real reality? Is it the 70 or 80 years that we get to live on this earth? Or is it, or is it eternity? 
Because the, our time here is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. That's the real or more real reality from that perspective. And we get to experience heaven here on earth. We don't have to wait till we get there. The other thing that we can learn from this event in the Gospel of Mark, the Transfiguration, is that this, these events leave a lasting impact on us. It left a lasting impact on Peter. Years later, Peter would write in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. He writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard his voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. Years later, Peter would write, and he's remembering that day. When you have an experience with God, you'll remember it too. I'm such a big fan of people having experiences with God for this reason. If we live intellectual and academic faith, uh, faith only, I can talk you into certain things. And then somebody smarter than me, and there's a whole world of people smarter than me, can come along and talk you out of what I talked you into. However, if you personally experience God, no one will ever be able to take that away from you. I once was blind, but now I see. How it happened, I don't know. I know my eyes are open now. No one will ever take that away from you. These men were forever changed from that day on the mountain. And as C.S. Lewis says, a man who's been in another world does not come back unchanged. They were changed. I've experienced dreams, visions, visitations from heaven, visitations from heavenly beings. I've been taken to heaven in the spirit. And I can tell you I've been forever changed. I'm here to tell you this, that God's no respecter of persons. And of this I'm convinced, that if he can do supernatural things and have supernatural experience and events in this guy's life, this ordinary fat kid from Brooklyn, if he could do it with me, he could certainly do it with you. I'm here to testify that God will take the least I brought nothing to the table. I came to Jesus because I beat up my best friend and put him in the hospital. That's how I came to Jesus. You know the name Zawaki means fool? My last name means fool. It means nothing. It means nobody. When Polish people came to Ellis Island to, be, to immigrate into the U.S., when the processors couldn't pronounce the unusual Polish names, they say, ah, Zawacki. I'm a crazy person. That's what it meant. Or troublemaker. That's who God chose. He took the, the nothing, the nobody, the fool, the troublemaker. He took the least and decided that he would do amazing things in my life for this reason, to let you know that he has set the bar really low. <laughs> and that if he does it for me, he'll gladly do it for you. Because I'm just a regular guy, man. There's nothing special about me at all except for him.
He chose me. He can certainly do it in you. So let's pray. Let's pray. Feel the Spirit of God this morning. Holy Spirit, we welcome you here. Let's stir things up, Lord. Stir things up. We want more of you, Lord. We want to experience more of you. We want to hear you like we've never heard you before. We want to see you like we've never seen you before. We want to experience your glory.